You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Farmer. Still the same Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. I'm your host for today. My name is Michael Farmer. I am joined not by my usual two colleagues, but just by one of them, David Grubbs, who, like me, teaches at a high school somewhere. How's it going, David? Oh, pretty good. It's uh, Columbus Day, so yeah. when, we're, when we're recording, um, which means I suppose this episode's going to go up late because I don't know when I'm going to edit it. It might go up tomorrow. <laughs> Uh, are you? Did you have today off school? Yeah, I do. And tomorrow is a teacher work day, so oh, that's nice. Yeah, we had Friday off too for fall break. Mm, that but I been. went in and graded papers all day. That all is right, a well, legitimate use of off time. That's what I figure. Well, uh, I'm sure nobody really cares about that stuff. So <laughs> why don't we? Uh, why don't we get to the topic at hand? We're going to be talking about the John Updike poem Americana. Now, I could not find this poem anywhere online, so I typed it out for us, and we're going to read it here. And that way, if the listeners don't have a copy of John Updike's Americana, which I assume they do not, uh, they'll at least have heard it. So uh, we're going to take a moment and read it here. Americana. Poem begun on Thursday, October 14th, 1991 at O'Hare Airport, Terminal 3, around 6 o'clock p.m. Gray within and gray without. The dusk is rolling west, a tidal wave of shadow that gently drowns Chicago. Overhead, the gray steel arches of this much-admired architectural essay in public space blend with the gray sky and distill a double sense of semi-enclosure, of concealment, and a universal open that includes the airfield with its pomp of taxiing, fresh-landed, smooth-nosed behemoths, the feeder highway sloping to an underpass not far beyond a gray-ribbed wall of glass. The taillights blazing ruby as autos break and fume with passion in the evening jam. The silvery Midwestern sky, its height implying an oceanic stretch of grain whose port is this diffuse metropolis. Without translucent clouds, within mute hordes of traveling strangers, numinous, their brisk estrangement here a mode of social grace. No two touching as they interweave and dodge in the silent interior dusk beneath the mock cathedral arches, each soul intent, each ticketed, each wrapped with a narrow vision. These persons throng my heart with a rustle of love, of joy that I am among them, where night and day, mingling, make a third thing, a between times of ecstatic layover and suspension. Women in gray jackets matching those of men above their taut gray skirts and blacks striding enlivened by the dignity of destination and children unafraid of being lifted up in aluminum arms bright colored pools of candy bars the men's room prim beside the equal access women briefcases floating in a leather flock 
announcements twanging in the transfixed air where cloudy faces merge and part again a cumulus of ghosts advancing stern yet innocent of everything but time advancing through me to their set departures through walls of gray as nearby taillights burn more furious in their piecemeal choked descent another fine transparency of film is added to the evening's shining weight of lovely nothingness among machines this poem in ballpoint on a torn off scrap of airline magazine got lost along with several boarding passes ticket stubs and airline napkins now it seeks me out here in new jersey on november 5th a friday in a fairfield radisson that overlooks an empty parking lot at dusk the painted stripes devoid of cars are like unplayed piano keys aligned within the drizzle that is lacquering the garden state beyond Route 46, an unknown mall, a stream of traffic glowing, white in the one direction, red in the other. This poem again, its kiss of ecstasy among waste spaces, airy corridors to somewhere else where all men long to be. I strain my eyes as neon starts to tell its buzzing, shoddy tale. Across the stream of traffic hangs a weathered sign that spells American Way Mall. The hotel room the shapes of luxury and cut-rate textures, offers nothing superfluous, not even a self-important so-called scratch pad near the telephone where travelers might write how strangely thrilled they were to pass this way, the American way, where beauty is left to make it on its own with no directives from kings or cultural commissars on high. It emerges, it seeps forth, stunning us with its grand erosions of the self its grift of atomisms and fleet inklings can carve a canyon or function as a clock, wakes to tick one single tick a day. The poem evaporates, a second time is lost, and then a third. In your reading, here and now, which turn to there and then, as dampness overtakes, quick molecule by molecule, the glowing moment when God's gray fire flickers on the edge of the field of vision like a worm of flame that struggles to consume a printed page. Thank you, David. Uh, so this is not uh, one of Updike's better known works. He, he says himself when he wrote it, which is um, October or uh, September through November 1991, um, this is after almost all of his most important books had been published. The Rabbit series had been wrapped up the year before that. The poem itself comes out in a collection called Americana and Other Poems, which I believe is 1997. I would say his last really essential book is 1996, In the Beauty of the Lilies. Updike's not known for his poetry in general, but the few poems people do know, most notably Seagulls on the one hand and was it called Seven Stanzas at Easter on the other? Both of those date from the 60s. So this is Updike in something like the twilight of his career. He died in 2009, so this is written 18 years or so before he died. Um, and yet, uh, I think the poem has a, a, a weird sort of power to it that is not true of basically any other poem in that collection, Americana and other poems. And so uh, I'm happy that we're here to talk about it today. Uh, too bad Nathan's not. I don't remember where Nathan is. Do you, David? It's something to do with his kid's school, I think. They've got Nathan going 
every which way. It's uh, I, I feel like Nathan, uh, like life has grabbed hold of Gilmore like a dog with an old sock and is just shaking him in every direction. So. Yeah. Which Thoughts is true of the two of us as well. So, <laughs> you know, in theory, we're recording every two weeks. We'll see how often it actually happens. But you'll get occasional episodes from us anyway, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, let's talk uh, structure and form really quickly. This is not something that interests me um, very much in most poems, but I do feel like we should at least mention it. Americana isn't exactly free verse, but it's also not not free verse. Is there anything that you think we should say about the poem in which this uh, – the form in which this poem comes to us, David? Well, it, the first thing that you have to notice is that there are stanzas, right? Uh, four distinct stanzas. Uh, there's no standard length. In fact, they uh, there's sort of a longer one, a shorter one, another longer one, and a yet shorter one. So four stanzas of an equally length, which seem to represent four stages, uh, more or less, in the poem's existence. Um, We'll be talking about how they shift in their their theme, their tone, their images, but the most literal difference is time, place, and I, I suppose agent. Uh, the poem is written, uh, presented as being written in an airport uh, in what might be two phases of attention. First, attention to the sort of larger setting of the airport as part of the larger cityscape, and then this closer uh, second stanza of closer attention to the people who are in the airport. Next, there's uh, the poem being found and resumed in a hotel with the attention to the hotel room and what is outside the hotel. And then last, the poem read by me now or you now. Um, it's your reading is, is, is what the stanza says. So there's this, this last phase of the poem when it has left the one who writes it and it is passed on to the one who reads it, who is now part of uh, the relationship of that poem. So other than that, and maybe an... Uh, maybe intentional, maybe accidental rhyme between shadow at the end of line two and Chicago in the middle of line three. But other than that, uh, I didn't know, I didn't notice any particular kind of structural definition. There's to, also underpass and wall of glass. Oh, I missed that one. The, the poem is kind of vaguely poorly in um, blank verse. Mm -hmm. So like, it, it kind of dances around iambic pentameter, but there are very few lines that are perfectly iambic. Mm -hmm. um, so the first one is iambic pentameter, pentameter with an extra stress symbol at the beginning, and a better, mm -hmm. a better uh, English PhD than me could probably tell you what that that uh, that first foot is called. But it's gray within and gray without the dusk, and then he does it again. Right, is mm -hmm. rolling west a tidal wave of shadow? It gently drowns Chicago overhead. So, I mean, it is kind of vaguely blank verse, and a lot of Updike's poetry from this period is vaguely blank verse in exactly that way, but vaguely iambic pentameter. He has, uh, this is from the collection, I think, Facing Nature, which is from the mid-'80s, but he has a, a, a series of poems he calls Spanish sonnets that are not sonnets because they're not actually iambic pentameter, but that seems to be the... Um, that, that seems to be the the meter that he is most comfortable with uh, mm -hmm. to the degree he's comfortable with any meter at all. Early yeah. in his career, most of his early work is uh, light verse, which of course is very, very metrical because you need the meter to make the joke. 
Right. Um, and it seems like as he moves away from light verse later in his career, he also moves away from meter for better or for worse. But th- this is a, a, a kind of vague blank verse, I think. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I, I hadn't really noted that strongly, but now that you look back at it, I mean, even in the places where the scansion doesn't quite work, right. there are no extraordinarily long lines. There are no extraordinarily short lines. And it has that kind of sonorous meditative feel that blank verse gets right right but he he doesn't give in to the meter enough mm-hmm. to let the meter really shape the meaning of what he's saying he mm-hmm. in in the fight between meter and meaning that um that john crow ransom recognizes in whatever essay that is at the beginning of his collection beating the bushes the the meaning definitely wins here he is he mm-hmm. is not submitting what he's trying to say to the to the form of the poem in a way that would productively warp what he's trying to say. At least I don't think he is. I would have to see other drafts of the poem, I suppose, or we would have to resurrect Updike and ask him what he wanted to say that he wasn't able to put into the, to the poem. It, well, it, it seems casual and tossed off like a lot mm-hmm. of his poetry does, even though it's, it, it's well done. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it's hard to imagine him, and maybe it's just like the the circumstances of the production of the poem that he talks about in the poem itself. It's hard to imagine him laboring over this again and again and again, going back and making every line perfect. The the kind of tossed offness mm-hmm. is a quality that is, I, I think, typical of his poetry. Well, that's part of the story of it right. as well. Right. So um, uh, if you went back and polished this, it would almost, I don't know, it would it would be a kind of incoherence artistically. Yeah, I would agree with that. Let's talk about the uh, the meaning then. The, the the first part of the poem is set in O'Hare Airport. How does Updike present the airport to us, and how does it match your experience in airports? I don't know how much time you've spent in airports. <laughs> um, more in the last uh, 10 years of my life than ever in the previous, you know, 30 some odd. Um, but yeah, I've, I've, I've logged a, a decent amount of time in airports. Mo- moving far away from family is something that makes that kind of become necessary. And Right, but you also have four children, so I wasn't sure yep. how often you fly with them. Uh, er- earlier, when we just had one or two, flying became more of a thing. And also, each job I've ever had was at least three states away <laughs> from whatever the next job was. Right. So there were always flights uh, connected to that as well. But yeah, uh, one thing I've never been in the O'Hare airport. So all I have is the poetic version of this. I don't know that I've ever really even seen pictures of it. Well, you've seen home alone, right? Uh, I have very, very vague memories of home alone and nothing that doesn't happen in a trap field mansion is in my memory anymore. The O'Hare airport is, is the airport in home alone. And I'll point out, that movie came out in 1991, just a few months after Uptake uh, wrote the first part of this poem. So maybe, oh. um, maybe, maybe they were actually filming it while he was there, and probably not. Well, you know, Macaulay Actually, Culkin I think that movie maybe came out in 1990. <laughs> so Macaulay Culkin may be one of these wandering strangers. I had a, I've been to O'Hare like twice, I think, one, and once, well, both times were to catch a uh, connecting flight, and the. The second time I was still a smoker and they had just gotten rid of the smoking areas inside O'Hare. Um, and I remember I had like an eight hour layover and I could not smoke, which when you're a, you know, pack a day smoker is that's a long time to go without a cigarette. 
So I don't have terribly fond feelings about O'Hare. <laughs> the other time I was flying from Omaha to Atlanta, I think, because that's that's when I got routed through O'Hare usually. And mm-hmm. O'Hare is set up on like a wheel, like a spoken wheel model. And, okay. and so you have to go all the way to the outside and then around to the next terminal. And I remember my flight in was at the very end of one terminal and my flight out was at the very end of the other terminal. And I had like 25 minutes to rush from one to the other, but I did make it. So I guess in that sense, I have a little bit uh, fonder memory of O'Hare, not my favorite airport. That's for sure. Mm. Well, in the poems presentation of it, your, your experience sounds a little more purgatorial. This, uh, well, it's, I'm going to struggle to say what I what I see here. Um, one is lots of gray. Uh, the word gray shows up um, many times in uh, in the poem itself, but in the in the first half of the uh, of the first half of the first stanza, it shows up one, two, three, four, five, six times, uh, just in that first half there. Gray isn't usually a good connotations color if that makes sense uh gray is neutrality with a sense of blandness of lifelessness um if you're thinking of uh kind of the way that color comes across in cinematography um it's usually a color of kind of dead urban spaces concrete um but here gray is a mirror of nature it's gray within and gray without the grayness of the structure is mirrored by the grayness of of dusk rolling in like a tidal wave of shadow uh there's um about halfway through the midwestern sky is silvery all right so there's this mirroring of what is above and what is in 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 nature in the sky and then this other smaller enclosure this other smaller arched enclosure um kind of a second uh artificial sky containing another ordered world um so there's this i i think it's kind of a microcosm macrocosm thing going on in the first stanza with uh, you know, the arches of the much admired architectural essay in public space blending with the gray sky and distilling a double sense of semi enclosure. Right. Um, yeah. So that, that, that was kind of the, the way that it starts is this mirroring kind of imagery. Uh, then we've got in the second half of it, this, uh, the strangers the people who begin to show up and the way that they are spoken of is uh, almost like stars moving in the heavens you know they like the stars are uh, numinous uh, weaving in and out among each other interweaving dodging in the silent interior dusk um, wrapped with a vision Uh, and I, I kept thinking of kind of Dantean imagery, uh, or the the medieval uh, the medieval notion of what what it is to look up into the sky, the way uh, C.S. Lewis talks about it in his discarded image, uh, in which there is this this ordered dance that's ultimately shaped by uh, by love, by um, longing and movement towards tr- 
transcendence and towards the ultimate. Uh, so that by the end of the first uh, stanza, you've got straight up words of, of love, joy, intermingling, and ecstasy. Yeah, which is is kind of how I feel in airports. Is it? Yeah, I mean, sometimes. There, there's basically two ways I feel in airports. Um, I feel, on the one hand, who are all these people and why are they in my way? I hate them. I hate them. <laughs> but in my in my better moments, especially if I've got time, mm-hmm. like this, this notion that everybody there, none of us will ever meet again in all likelihood. None of us have ever met before. We have wildly different aims for our life. But we're all kind of zeroed in on the one place we're going. Mm-hmm. And we're all moving in tandem without running into each other for the most part, without moving together for the most part. Mm-hmm. There, there's this there's this tremendous sense in airports for me of order hidden underneath chaos. And for that reason, I find I don't like to fly at all. I don't like being on airplanes, but like being in the airport is exciting for me mm-hmm. in a way that I, I have to be early understand like, <laughs> like if there's any chance that i'm not going to be at my gate an hour before that that door opens i won't enjoy it but if i get there two two and a half hours before the flight and i have time to go through security and not have to worry that i'm going to miss anything that that moment after you leave security until you get to your gate i i find that very energizing in in kind of exactly the way he's talking about here where where, where there's this sense in which you're all in it together, and yet you're also all alone, moving mm-hmm. separately but together. There's an almost like Leibnizian quality to it. You know how he descri- how Leibniz describes the monads as as operating based on a pre-established harmony mm-hmm. with their bodies instead of making the bodies move. I feel like I feel like in some ways at airports we're all monads <laughs> with our pre-established harmonies. Well, in that case, uh, it, the, microco- the microcosm, macrocosm is kind of mirroring all the way down to the level of the individuals who are in this ordered space. Right, right. There's a providential quality to the airport, mm-hmm. isn't there? Does it sound, uh, does it strike you as sort of uh, sort of Whitman flavored? Oh, yes. And I was going to get to that when we get to the last um, stanza. Yes, yeah, this is, this is in its way a very Whitmanian poem. And I mean, it's worth pointing out the first, I don't have the book with me here, but the first eight or nine poems in the in the collection Americana are all about planes. It's all about mm-hmm. flying. Because, you know, by huh. this point, he's a serious public intellectual. He's being flown all over the country all the time to give speak to give speeches and all this other stuff. So, you know, you, you figure he's spending full days of his life every year in airports. So he has all these airplane poems. And I'll tell you, this is the one where he likes it. There's a bunch of the other poems where he's really upset about it. But in this one, like the stars align for him in O'Hare airport and he's able to, um, he's able to find the joy in it. And and Mm -hmm. don't you think part of that has to do with the time of day? Because he tells us not only the day of the year and the day of the week that this happens, but the time it happens. And I just looked it up. Um, four days from now is uh, October 14th, and in Chicago on October 14th, the sun the sun com- has completely set by by t- by 6:15 p.m. Hmm. And so you've got that. He talks about in between spaces. You've also got an in between time, right? The sun mm-hmm. is going down, mm-hmm. and you lived in the Midwest. You know that starting late August, late autumn, 
it's gray all the time, right? The colder mm-hmm. it gets, the grayer it gets. Yep. And so there's this there's this sense in which the airport becomes this incandescent space in part because it's so gray outside. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like the film, the film makes imagery. me want to go back to O'Hare Airport, which is an insane <laughs> an insane thing to want. But is it like? But that's that's. I, I feel like that's what poetry ought to do. Yes, poetry is supposed to help you find to 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 reveal the beauty that is there, right? Like it's mm-hmm. it's not like it's making O'Hare Airport beautiful when it's not. It's just that Updike with his with his poetic imagination is capable of seeing things there that the rest of us, when we're rushing from gate to gate, don't see. Though I would argue it's precisely because he's the public intellectual uh, that he's able to see it because he's got these notions of microcosm and macrocosm. And, uh, you know, if you want to say Leibnizian dancing monads or Dantean stars orbiting through love, either way, he's got these he's got this. Whitmania. I like. I've never used that phrase before. Whitmania. Yeah, I like Whitmania. He's got the Whitmania, and you know, so he's got this this literary voice that he knows, this literary vision, which I think he also trusts his reader to, if not consciously detect, to at least at least know what it is to think in this mode and to say, what have you what have you thought in this mode in this other space. And, you know, things like seeing airplanes as fresh landed, smooth nosed behemoths, right? Like that's a that's a specific kind of reference. Um, it's it's a beauty that you need to he, he comes in armed with a lot of notions, uh, metaphors, conceits and even voice garnered from other poetry that helps to make this space um, helps to make it beautiful in that kind of way. Well, um, the poem was written as its subtitle notes in 1991. He was about four decades into his career by that point. I've already, already mentioned that, I think. How had American life changed since the 1950s and where did those changes show up in this poem? I suppose the pervasive of air travel by this point. Uh, I know there was air travel in the 40s and 50s, and even even before that, there was commercial air air travel in the. Certainly, it was common by the 30s. I don't know about the 20s. Yeah, but by the by the 50s, it it was common, but th- mm-hmm. it was it was not for the everyman, right? Right, um, and I, you know, I'd I'd have to I'd have to do a deeper dive than I have, but. Uh, into the history of it, but my impression is that just from movies and things like that is, you know, through the 50s and even into the 60s, people are are embarking and disembarking like on the tarmac. Um, the the idea of sort of going into this vast space that you enter the airplanes through tunnels that you're always, you know, once you get past those, you know, the the doors, you're kind of indoors until you get to this other indoor space that's in another city um that that might have been uh if not as experienced that was newer then um in 1991 i don't think that was new then but uh updike at least was old enough to have remembered other ways 
and right. and and to be contrasting those with with this experience. Um, so that I mean that's that's probably one thing that you see here. Um, the references to uh, the way that men's and women's uh, business wear, because they're gray jackets and gray skirts, um, mimicking the business wear of men. Um, there's uh, that that kind of, I, I suppose, a, a change there. Um, both men and women on business trips in business attire. Um, that reference to the to the restrooms being uh he uses the phrase equal access is kind of drawing attention to that um and also um black people uh african americans uh the phrase striding enlivened by the dignity of destination um and again updike is old enough to remember times that were not terribly distant when traveling as an African-American was not a uh, necessarily a safe or secure thing. Um, and and he is also old enough to appreciate the difference when he looks around um, and sees uh, all the different sorts of people who are around him in a way that would not have always been true in an airport. Um, I don't know about the candy bars that maybe maybe that's a new thing I haven't um, later on there's a reference to malls um, is that new I, I don't know but I'm, I'm not enough of a of a scholar of at what point uh, those particular aspects of of the culture that I grew up in at what point those sort of entered as to whether or not they would be they would be new things. Right. I, I think what interests me, David, is that there's there's a number of different ways you can narrate the changes in mm -hmm. air travel from the 50s to the 90s. Right. And not all mm -hmm. of them, maybe not most of them are terribly pleasant ones, um, mm -hmm. like famously flying in the in the early 60s was a more elegant experience than flying in the 1990s and especially now. Right. It was, mm -hmm. it was easier in a lot of ways. I mean, 1991, they hadn't gone through the post 9-11 um, security upgrade so it, it probably wasn't so I, I i can kind of vaguely remember flying in the 1990s um i i, I flew maybe maybe four times before 9 11 um but like there, there's all sorts of ways you can narrate it and most of them are not positive but he is narrating it in a positive way right that the, mm -hmm. in some ways this whole experience this thing that's been offered to him where he loves everybody and he's, he's able to have this kind of transcendent experience in o'hare it is now more open to other people than it would have been in the 1960s and mm -hmm. and part of that is because women are more equal part of it is because ethnic minorities are more equal and part of it he doesn't mention this is because it's cheaper to fly and because it's cheaper to fly it's also much less comfortable to fly up yep. like um, was a tall man. He was six foot three. Now I'm sure he's flying first class, so it probably doesn't matter as much to him. Um, but uh, you know, being six foot three and being crammed into a standard coach compartment in um, in an airplane is a is a very unpleasant experience. But he doesn't mention any of that stuff. What he mentions instead is that like we're we're all kind of moving together, and there's this enormous diversity within the airport that wouldn't have been there when he mm -hmm. first started flying, whenever that was. I don't know what his what his first airplane trip was. Yeah. I I, I love the 
I love the love that's here. Um, I, I didn't realize that about his about his height, and I mean, you're you're a decent amount taller than I am. So I'm six I, foot three. I'm the, I'm the same yeah. height as Uptuck. Yeah, so you know you know what it is to fold yourself up into uh, into a third class seat. Yes. <laughs> yes. Which is why I usually pay the extra 150 for Comfort Plus because it's at least a little bit more dignified. Well, f- fortunately, I'm I'm small enough to fit in a relatively compact space with you know at least not active pain, if not amazing leisure. Um, yeah. Uh, and I, I would say that this is also kind of a, a, a Whitman-like feature uh, of the poem, the mm-hmm. sort of the, the joy of being with many different sorts of people and uh, seeing them as part of this experience and it being and some, in some way reflective of, uh, well, what, certainly what Whitman would have seen as an, as an American kind of value of hey we're all here together doing this thing isn't that wonderful let's have a candy bar <laughs> you, the other thing that had changed is terrorism i mean even, yeah. even in 1991 because there's a it's a big plot point in rabbit at rest which was published in 1990 the lockerbie explosion where the mm-hmm. the terrorists blew the plane up over scotland that was that was just like 2 years before Mm-hmm. This poem was written, and again, that completely gets ignored. Like this, this gets to be a transcendent experience, one without without anger, without fear. It's just like this weird space outside of place and time, where we can kind of coexist and love each other, or at least he loves them. Who knows what they feel about him? Because of course, he's not <laughs> talking to anyone. Well, and if he gets up, he's going to be in everyone's way. That's, yeah. that's right. Well, and, and and two, we we don't see him on the plane, right? Yep. Like this ends. Uh, presumably, he stops writing the poem because his plane starts loading. Mm-hmm. And that's maybe the other thing to mention about airports is airports are still, to some extent, and airplanes even more so, a place where your normal everyday requirements no longer apply. So there's mm-hmm. because you can't check your cell phone because it's hard to work on a plane, or at least you don't have to work on a plane. It's the one one place where some people can watch a movie undisturbed or read a book undisturbed, undisturbed. Um, which is you know kind of a glorious thing about flying, and about being mm-hmm. at the gate for that matter. I mean when you're when you're sitting at the gate, there's not that much to do, and if you can manage to stay off your smartphone, which I know you don't have, David. <laughs> Then you can sit there for an hour and read a book relatively undisturbed. I mean, it, it mm-hmm. gets harder every year because they blast you out with CNN and whatnot on the overhead Ugh. televisions. But, um, but like, like, I, I think not enough has been said about how airports function as places. They're 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 very strange places. Mm-hmm. Um, there's really nothing else like them in the world. Um, the train stations aren't like airports. Trains aren't like airplanes, for better or for worse. Well, um, I think maybe they used to be more like more alike, both the train station and the train. Um, I mean, if, if you look at kind of pictures of older those the older, larger train stations, um, what used to be the one that used to be in downtown Birmingham, which my my grandfather, who worked at the worked at the railroad and was incredibly sad when they knocked the old Birmingham train station down um it had just 
massive windows and uh, this enormous cathedrally ceiling. Yeah, I, I suppose you could have probably written something, not not an identical poem, but many of the same sorts of observations about the the nature of the space could have been made in that kind of train station. Right, and well, and in one of Frederick Buechner's novels, he talks about trains as being like in the world but not of the world. I, uh, basically, mm-hmm. that when you're on a train, you're there but you're not there. You're not actually mm-hmm. connecting with the world. Yeah. It's Although, kind of, I mean, with a plane, you're not even in the world, right? You, like, there's nothing even to watch. If you look out mm-hmm. the window, all you're going to see, for the most part, is clouds. Mm-hmm. So you can you can close that window and read your book or watch a movie or whatever. Yeah. Both of them are a kind of mechanical transcendence, though. Yeah. Yeah, a kind of phony transcendence, I suppose, is the better way to put that. Yeah. Well, let's... um. Let's get out of the airport. Uh, there's an abrupt shift in the third stanza where Updike picks up the poem in this hotel room in New Jersey, haphazardly, right? He he's mm-hmm. clearly forgotten that he wrote those first two stanzas in the O'Hare airport. A month later, he picks up the poem in, in New Jersey. Uh, does that section of the poem have something different to say than the airport section, or is it con- a continuation of the theme and tone of what came before? No, this, everything, everything has shifted. I feel like he's... Uh, as he's reading over this fragment, which he describes as having been found in ballpoint on a torn off scrap of airline magazine, you know, bundled up with, you know, I guess other bits of scraps of paper in a briefcase or a pocket, whatever it happens to be. He's read that poem and as he's looking around this room and looking out the window at, at what he can see in this space, he sees some of the same things, but they no longer mean what they meant. Um, one of the biggest differences in this third stanza is the gray is gone. Uh, it's it's strange. It's as if the, the poetic vision that you had in the first two stanzas has passed along with the gray. Um, it's the poem wants to be. Uh, he describes it as... Uh, it seeks me out here. It's as if the poem poem is seeking to reclaim him to become more of what it ought to be, to be a, this, this complete poem. But it doesn't quite work. It's, it's as if its spell is no longer working on him. And when he, he looks out at the traffic, um, he no longer sees in the first stanza. It was... Uh, tail lights blazing ruby as autos break and fume with passion, right? So that's that's what it is in the first stanza. In the second stanza, the nearby tail lights burn more furious in their pe- piecemeal choked descent. And now uh, in the third stanza, a stream of traffic glowing white in one direction, red in the other. It's it's as if he could see in the first two stanzas um, connotations, implications in that vision that in by the time he gets to the third stanza, those things are no longer enchanted. They're no longer um, magical. The spell passed. Um, the there are hints of I feel like this 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 fading of energy is in the uh, the metaphor for the parking lot, 
the painted stripes devoid of cars are like unplayed piano keys. The uh, the potential for music, but the music isn't played. And then there's also the uh, the self and the lack of a scratch pad. Uh, not even a self-important so-called scratch pad near the telephone where travelers might write how strangely thrilled they were to pass this way. But no, there's not a scratch pad there. Um, If he hadn't had this leftover poem, he wouldn't have been able to write down what he wrote in the earlier poem. Exactly. And, And even it was made possible by ballpoint on a torn off scrap of an airline magazine. It's it's as if he didn't bring he didn't bring he doesn't have his his you know neat little leather bound journal you know that he can pull out and write in which I don't know that's that that strikes me as very very odd that he, he wrote would, um he wrote on those yellow legal pads mostly okay uh, I, I'm a little surprised he doesn't have one with him but at least within the world that the poem presents uh, there even being the possibility of poetry depends on sort of accidental paper <laughs> uh occasional paper which even which by the time he gets to the hotel at the third stanza even that is denied and uh this is not really a place where poetry seems to happen so it's it's as if we're watching uh watching the magic fade at least that's my read well, and, and you think about hotels are these other kind of in-between spaces, right? And, mm. and if you if you spend much time in hotels, especially if you spend much time alone in hotels, they're they're very very lonely places. They're, they're, uh-huh. Like I used to love to go to hotels, and I I you know it's not like I'm getting flown everywhere, but now when I go to a hotel by myself, it's it's just a a kind of sad experience. Mm-hmm. You have this this place that will be completely wiped of your presence as soon as you check out, within an hour mm-hmm. and a half of you being checked out anyway. And you, you have a window that doesn't open, and you look out, usually not into any great thing. He's looking out into an empty parking lot at a Radisson on a, a Friday <laughs> night. Like, why are there not cars in this hotel? What's wrong with the hotel that nobody is staying there on a Friday <laughs> night? Maybe it's early in the evening and everyone's gone out to dinner. And then, like, he, the, 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 all this traffic, the place they're headed is American Way Mall. I don't know if you looked, up, looked it up. It's a real mall, but it's not a mall. It's an outlet mall. Oh. So, so it's a strip mall that they're all going to. It's, it's not, it's not one of those, you know, beautiful fake downtowns that, that some malls end up being. It, it's just, it's it's what he calls in uh, Rabbit Run the 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 most unlovely environment imaginable. I believe is the <laughs> is the phrase is the phrase from Rabbit Run. Like yeah. this is this is this is an empty environment from the room to the desk drawer to the um to the parking lot. Mm. It's just empty. Yeah. Whereas the um whereas the airport was so full. Yeah, I, it's uh, I, I don't know if you've had this. You probably have had this experience, uh, probably more than I have. The experience of having started a poem and then set it down and forgotten about it and come to it later and had this urge to do more with it. 
but just being unable to get back into the place that the poem came from. Right, right, which does seem to happen here, and he get, he gets around it by just not making it the same place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is artful, right? It's it's like he treats that moment that I, I think anyone who's who's kind of had sort of fits of poetry. Um, he takes that moment and he turns it into part of the uh, sort of the the life the life uh, span uh, the life cycle of the poem, which is cool. Well, it's this third stanza where we get essentially the title of the poem as well. Um, mm-hmm. What what is distinctive about America, uh, according to this poem, David? Oh man. Uh, the he talks about the wall or the the mall uh the american way mall which he can see out of the hotel room but the next thing that he talks about is the hotel room the shapes of luxury and cut rate textures offers nothing superfluous and that is a way of saying the american way where beauty is left to make it on its own uh, what on earth does that mean? Um, but within the poem itself, the possibility of poetry depends upon upon time spent in this space, uh, in this airport space, having extra time to sit and meditate, uh, to observe uh, the literal space of paper to jot things down on, um, there, these are the sorts of things that are needed for poetry, um, time and space, but in a, uh, in a society that's built around, uh, an excessive efficiency, uh, in which, uh, the, the phrase, nothing superfluous shapes of luxury. Um, there's this appearance of of opulence, or at least an, enough appearance of opulence to make you kind of not see the efficiency so much. Um, everything could just be, you know, white <laughs> or or gray, but in this space, it's uh, you know, cut rate textures. There's 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 some kind of aesthetic going on, but it's it's not actually artistic in any way. Right, um, we've all been in we've all been in hotels right like that, right? I mean, that's, oh yeah, that's how the Radisson is. <laughs> yes. So I mean, there's nothing uh, there's nothing generous or abundant or truly recreative here. Um, there's no grace. There's no extra that makes beauty possible. Um, there's no powerful advocate for beauty. There's only efficiency and the the addition of beauty to that efficiency in order to make it a prestige commodity. And that, that I think is kind of the sadness there, which feels really weird, a weird observation when you set it alongside of the things that he sees in the airport. And we know that the airport wasn't that much better, <laughs> except architecturally, right? He makes that reference to 
uh, in the first stanza to it being an architectural essay in public space. At least someone had given attention to the art to the uh, to the design of the airport as being a place for humans to be in and have some kind of an aesthetic experience. That's not just defined by. Um, well, hotel logic, which is to get as many people into rectangle spaces as possible. Right, right. Now, again, the 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 airport is full and the hotel room is empty. Right. Like, mm -hmm. uh, think about the maximalism of the the airport terminal. The, yeah. The number of restaurants they cram in there, and they try to make them. I don't know what it was like in 1991. Now they try to make them look like real restaurants. They they mm -hmm. you have you have some um, some airports that have like exterior spaces within the airport. I remember um, LAX, you can actually go sit outside while you wait for your plane, which is an insane thing to think about, you know? <laughs> airports, airports are maximalist and hotel rooms, unless they are just super luxury rooms, which is not the sort of place I stay and mm -hmm. probably not the sort of place even Updike stayed for the most part. They're, they're interchangeable and they're empty and they're again they're just kind of sad mm -hmm. being in an airport at six o'clock alone is not the same thing as being in a hotel room at six o'clock alone mm -hmm. at least there's energy at the airport right right whereas whatever energy you have in the hotel room comes from you but the hotel room is a totally necessary place if as he says he talks about the, the, the poems kiss of ecstasy among waste spaces, airy corridors to somewhere else where all men long to be. Mm. Like if America really is this series of corridors to somewhere else where all men long to be, of course, like the hotel is going to be an important part of American life, as indeed mm -hmm. it probably is. Right. I don't know how many um, airports you've spent time in, but I know you've been in a lot of hotel rooms. Oh, yeah. And they're all the same. They are all the same. And it, it, like unless they are unless they are super luxury. Yeah. Um, which uh, again, I've I've stayed in maybe one or two hotels like that my whole life. Mostly mm -hmm. when I was a kid, and my parents could pay for it. Um, my wife and I, uh, Katie and I, have or more early in our marriage, but since then we've you know we'll try to arrange once or twice a year. A chance to kind of get away and um, go somewhere by ourselves. And there have been, uh, there's like a, there's an inn at Biltmore in Asheville, North Carolina, and uh, a, another kind of little inn in North Carolina, which we stayed at, which was, which had been there for like a hundred years. And uh, an old hotel we stayed in and Oh, I can't even remember what the town was in in Kansas, but it was a again, it was a historic uh, hotel. It was built into this kind of flat iron block. Um, it was pretty cool. Uh, it, it just we try to f we've we've tried to find places like that where it's not you know rectangle logic uh, with pleather couches and you know the the top sheet that you don't want to think about too much. Um, <laughs> you know, as uh, we, we've tried to find those spaces and, and it's cool when we're there, but, but most of the hotels we I've ever been in have been like this. And it's, it's a very sad place to be. Um, especially if you're by yourself 
and I will not watch television in a hotel. It that just makes me sadder. It it is the kind of final surrender. Yeah. I I agree. I went to that I went to the Catholic Imagination Conference and I don't think I turned on the the hotel TV mm-hmm. the whole time I was there despite the fact that I spent each evening much of each evening in the room by myself. Yeah. Yeah. I, it, I, there, there's there's something about that that just makes me just really sad. And I try not to be sad on purpose. <laughs> I mean, I feel like though this stanza has something hopeful at the end of it. Though. Yeah, I, like it's 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 sad, but it's still kind of beautiful, right? I mean, it is a poem ultimately. Right. He the beauty has found its way on its own, mm-hmm. as he says. Well, let's look at that final stanza because that's the that's the really cryptic one. Um, mm. What is God's gray fire? as he calls it, and what happens to Updike's work at the end of this poem? Well, this is where the grayness returns, the grayness that we had, especially at the beginning of the first stanza, but it was also uh, picked up in the people, um, what the way the, the women are dressed in the second stanza, that that grayness has reemerged. And with it, the um, your your memory as the reader of what was done with that grayness of grayness becoming a thing that he was seeing in the airport and in the people of the airport that was also mimicking um, the the sky in that moment of the day. Um, you know, there, for, for this moment, what would have been not an aesthetic feature of this space, grayness. <laughs> suddenly becomes an aesthetic feature uh, for this in this moment everything the grayness actually means transcendence it means as above so below it means that and so in this last stanza uh i think there he he reminds us of that moment uh in in the first couple of stanzas when we got to see something um, he looks back to that, it, those first couple of stanzas, and even his attempt to re-sort of catch that vision in the third stanza, even though he fails, um, it's as if he can see the that that fading of it, um, you know, in this description of it flickering on the edge of paper uh, like flame, um, and this sense that there was something there. Uh, even in that grayness, even in that unexpected space, um, which here made me think of uh, Gerard Manley Hopkins, and uh, that there's some something uh, like God's grandeur is seen here. But whereas Hopkins talks about God's grandeur being in sort of nature, right? Um, oozing you know like the ooze of oil uh here it's it's by talking about uh god's gray fire and the grayness of the airport um it's almost as if even within the works of man god's grandeur is seen by the ways that these human uh these human creations even inadvertently end up mirroring beauties that are transcendent um and that's that's where you really get the the whitmanian 
quality. Mm. That, that's where this poem reminds me of Crossing Brooklyn Ferry, where mm. where Whitman just spends, you know, five pages praising the city. And that that is also the poem where he says, it avails not time nor place, distance avails not. I am with you, you men and women of a generation or ever so many generations hence, just mm. as you feel when you look on the river and sky, so I felt and I mean, that that's, I think, what he is saying, kind of what he's saying here at the end. The poem evaporates, the second time is lost, and then a third in your reading here and now. Like, Updike is not in the past anymore. Updike is with you here and now. Time availeth not and distance availeth not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a cool moment. And I think it's a kind of realization, too, on what he says at the end of this third stanza with beauty... Even though beauty is left on its own with no defender, it still emerges. It seeps forth. That's the part. That's the point at which I was like, "Ooh, Hopkins!" Uh, it emerges. It seeps forth, stunning us with its grand erosions of the self. So even though uh, it's it's uh, it can carve a canyon, right? It's it's the slow drip that nonetheless can carve uh, a canyon given time um and this is and he's not talking about you know the beauty in nature that we ignore this is not the romantic vision uh this is the beauty that seeps through uh what's the for what's the word that he uses there it's grift of atomisms i mean grift what a weird word to use um I suppose you, I, I'd like I'd love to hear what your take was on that line, but I sort of took it as as part of the uh, the shapes of luxury and cut rate textures, the way that the modern, um, especially the late sort of the late modern uh, that he would be seeing in a hotel in the 90s is sort of aping beauty in order to look like it's a high quality thing but it's not a high quality material it's not a high quality artistic vision and yet even in this commercial grift frankly this this kind of scam of beauty there's still a slow drip that's there um that could uh, make an impression if if you were if you were paying attention if you were there to hear it which I think is pretty solidly Updike's view of American culture. Mm. I, I think I think that fits in with what he's been saying about American culture since the late fifties. It, mm-hmm. It's shoddy. It's 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 weak and it it is incredibly weak compared to like the centuries of European culture. And yet, if you if you only know where to look, there's grace kind of sprinkled throughout, or beauty sprinkled throughout, as he puts it here. Mm-hmm. It the 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 poem accomplishes the impossible, which is it kind of makes you wish you were sitting in an empty Fairfield Radisson on a November evening. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it does some of the some of the things that uh, it does some of the things that Elliot does. To the landscapes that he talks about. Yeah, yeah, I, I think it's actually impossible to describe a landscape with any sort of specificity or detail and make it entirely unattractive. Mm-hmm. I think I think if you are true to the place, the beauty of it will come out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, 
I remember, and this is, you know, at some point in my in my adolescence when I thought that I was a much deeper person than I probably was. Um, you know that you know that moment in adolescence when suddenly you start having like deep thoughts and because right. you have access to no one else's brain, you assume you're the genius who's having them for the first time. Right. Anyway, I remember super vividly sitting uh, outside of a some store or other waiting for a ride sitting on a curb and looking at a pigeon walking across the parking lot next to this this oil slick and in that moment the iridescence in part of the pigeon's wing and the iridescence in the oil slick clicked and I was like, oh, the pigeon wears rainbows. And I was suddenly so sad that this, you know, this this creature that's, you know, dressed in rainbows is, you know, picking dried French fries out of a parking lot. Um, oh, man, you got to read up to like story pigeon <laughs> feathers where, where the, the protagonist has a very similar realization. Yeah, but... I, yeah, I, I, clearly I do. But I, I think that's what happens if you just slow down and look. Beauty's well, gonna—it's what gonna art sneak up for. on you and hit you. Particularly, it's what poetry is there for. It's—it's—it's it's, yeah. it's, it's there to show you the things that you are not paying close enough attention to mm-hmm. see. And and paintings do it, and and movies do it, or music does it, or whatever. But I think that's the thing that poetry does better than any other art form is it it kind of picks the beauty out of the quotidian spaces that you inhabit well it gives you language for it and then you when you carry it with you you actually start to see those things in the spaces that you're in without them having to be transformed with paint you start painting the world that you're in with the words you carry in your head and I think that's a lot of what he's doing in this poem, where we see these echoes of Whitman, echoes of Hopkins, echoes of Eliot, um, this, uh, the school of the poets teaching how to see beauty by giving this gift of words uh, that, that transforms what is seen into something uh, higher. Thank you for talking uh, about this relatively obscure uptake poem with me, David. Uh, the next episode of this show is going to be part of this year's Halloween crossover episode, which is going to be on the films of John Carpenter. So let's see. This, this is going to air on um, the 25th. October mm-hmm. 25th. It's going to be about the movie Halloween, and it's going to be hosted by me with Danny Anderson, although I think Danny Anderson is going to be on a number of these uh, episodes <laughs> because he's like a John Carpenter super fan. Well, it was his idea. Right. And honestly, I think he just if he could be, I think he would be on every episode. He certainly could be like, I don't think there's anybody stopping him. There's open uh, open slots as I look at the sign up sheet. Yep. So let me um, let me go ahead and tell everybody what what we're doing. Um, So we'll be talking about Halloween and then Book of Nature uh, on that Wednesday. We'll be talking about Escape from Los Angeles, Escape from L.A. Uh, sectarian review that Thursday will be about Prince of Darkness, a movie I know nothing about. 
It's Christian awesome. Feminist, that Friday will be The Fog. And then, David, you are wrapping things up the following Monday, Halloween itself, with The Thing, which is the one I almost chose, but I felt like because CHP goes first, we should pick the really famous one. Mm. Well, I appreciate that because The Thing is one of my favorite movies ever. I've never seen any of these movies. I will probably watch at least some of them. I'm so afraid to watch Halloween. <laughs> I don't like home invasion movies. It'll probably be good. I've been saying for years that I should watch this movie. I mean, uh, it's a classic. I know. And and uh, Anderson told genre. me that it's, 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 it's not gory, that it's mostly suspense. And I do like suspense movies. So, uh, so uh, tune in. Um, tune in, in in two weeks to hear me wet my pants on uh, <laughs> Halloween with well, uh, Danny and hopefully a third person. My pitch for uh, Prince of Darkness is that it has the younger brother from Simon and Simon in it. That's your pitch. Is that's, that Simon that's and Simon pitch. a show that literally no one remembers except <laughs> you? There's a there's a person from the younger Simon, I assume, <laughs> is going to be on this movie, and that's yes. why that's why people should watch it. Yes, that's my pitch. Your pop cultural knowledge is always surprising, David. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> So I'll probably watch at least some of these. I don't know. Uh, I'll at least watch the ones of the episodes I have to edit, which I guess is just us and uh, C- CFP. Cool. Well, uh, thank you, David. Thanks for uh, thanks for coming on, even when Nathan couldn't. Uh, Thank you. Thanks, everybody, for listening. The, I'm so rusty about this. The Christian Humanist Podcast is a production of the Christian Fe- Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Till next time for... David Grubbs and the absent Nathan Gilmore, this is Michael Farmer saying, let your sins be strong and let your faith be stronger.